Heavenly Father, another week has come and gone, and we, your people, have gathered again. We come before you, and we stand before you once again. We ask you now to be present with us, to be present in your word, to be present in our praise, to be present in the breaking of bread. We ask you to be present, Lord, because we need you. We need you to comfort us. We need you to renew us. We need you to revive us once again. And so we ask that you would be with us now, that you would bless your people. We pray that you would hear our prayer now for your mercy's sake. Amen. Hear God's call to worship for us this morning from Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. And the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is the Lord our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Let's respond to God's call to worship by standing together and singing hymn number 343, Christ has made the sure foundation.
As we come into God's presence, we become awareness of we become aware of our failures of the past week, of maybe the past few days, of maybe the past few minutes. And so as we come before God, let's kneel before him and confess our sins together. Let's pray together. Our soul is like a house, small for you to enter, but we pray that you will enlarge it. It is in ruins, but we ask you to remake it. It contains much that you will not be pleased to see. This we know and do not hide. But to whom can we cry except to you? Forgive us, O Lord. Cleanse us from our sins, O Lord, and our secret sins. What wretches we are. In your mercy, Lord our God, tell us what you are to us. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Come, O Lord, and stir our hearts. Call us back to yourself. Kindle your fire in us and carry us away. Be our fire and our sweetness. Let us love you and hasten to your side. In Jesus' name, amen. Now lift up your heads and hear the good news. Central to how we relate to God, how we relate to him, especially when we confess our sins, is what he is like, what his character is. So how do we perceive God? Or more importantly, how does he describe himself to us? Well, he does just that in Exodus 34, when he passes before Moses. Hear how God describes himself there. It says, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. It's embedded deep in God's character to forgive his people. God, our Heavenly Father, has had mercy on us. He has sent his only son to die for you. And if you've trusted in Christ, if you've confessed your sins this morning, then for Jesus' sake, God forgives you all of your sins. Believe his word again this morning and know that your sins are forgiven. Let's respond to God's grace by confessing together our faith, our faith in him using the words of the Heidelberg Catechism. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Let's continue to respond together and confess how our hope is in Christ alone using the hymn printed for you in the bulletin.
into God's presence, we've confessed our sins, we've received forgiveness uh, from his word, and we've praised him for who he is. Let's now, as we've praised him with our words, let's praise him indeed as well by giving our tithes and offerings.
As we present to God just a portion of what he has given to us, let's acknowledge that it is from him that we receive all good things, using the words of the doxology. Please rise. come to the second to the last chapter of the or paragraph of the book of Joshua we're reading from verse 14 of chapter 24 to verse 28 we said last time that what we have in Joshua 24 is the account of a ceremony of covenant renewal the chapter bears the marks of the literary form of the ancient near eastern treaties after which uh, the Lord um, described his own covenant with Israel, especially in the material we find in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. In verses 1 to 13 of this same chapter 24, we found a typical preamble and historical prologue. In the rest of this section of chapter 24, we'll find other typical features, including the threat of curses for disobedience, arrangement for the deposit of the covenant document, and the provision of witnesses to the covenant. As this is a report of the ceremony itself, not the covenant document, such as we have, for example, in Deuteronomy, the text we're about to read does not perfectly resemble a typical ancient Near Eastern covenant, but it indicates that were we to have the text, were we actually to have the document that was produced on this occasion, it would conform to the standard pattern. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. So therefore, of course, because of this recital of God's grace to Israel in the previous verses in the historical prologue. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eye to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites 
in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, there is no direct reference to Israelite idolatry in Egypt in the narrative of Exodus. But given, that, given what we read about Israel in Egypt, it hardly surprises us to learn that they worshipped other gods besides Yahweh. Indeed, we read in Leviticus 17, verse 7, that Israel had worshipped goat gods in Egypt. The gods of the Amorites would be the gods of Canaan, whom, given her history, Joshua fears will prove a temptation to Israel. Now, the Lord has given his people many reasons to believe in him. That's part of the purpose of the historical prologue, to rely on his word. That is as true for us today as it was for the Israelites in Joshua's day. In the Gospel of John, at the end, we read also that Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples that are not recorded in this book. They, too, had seen with their own eyes the power and the faithfulness of God. And they knew for these reasons that what God had taught them through Jesus was the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Francis Schaeffer, commenting on this text in Joshua 24, calls these miraculous signs, all of these demonstrations of God's power and faithfulness, space-time proofs. And he draws our attention to the fact that from the beginning to the end, the Bible is always uh, drawing our attention to the fact that, the, that there are reasons, sufficient reasons, to believe the truth of the Word of God. Now, Joshua's remark, if you find it evil to serve the Lord, is obviously rhetorical. He's not suggesting that one choice is as good as another. His remark has bite because to worship any other gods would be to repudiate not only Abraham, but their recent history from the Exodus to the conquest. It certainly wasn't the gods of Canaan who had given them the promised land. Fidelity to the Lord is the only reasonable response to overwhelming waves of Yahweh's mercy. But don't miss the obvious contrast either. Only Israel had to make a choice like this one. Ancient Near Eastern peoples could worship as many gods as they pleased. Only Israel was forbidden to worship any but one. One last thing to notice in this important 15th verse. As for me and my house. Joshua spoke not only for himself, but for his family. The spiritual solidarity of the family is a fact not only of biblical revelation but of the observation of life. God's grace and God's judgment run in the lines of generations, or they should. The decisions we make as parents, the spiritual choices we make, affect not only our children, but our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, and on and on. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites, who lived in the land. Therefore, 
we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. So the people of Israel got the obvious point. They knew their future lay with Yahweh because of what he had done for them in the past. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. That's not what we expected to hear from Joshua. One scholar has called these words perhaps the most shocking statement in the Old Testament. (coughs) Yahweh is a holy and a jealous God. That is, he will not brook any division of loyalty on the part of his people. The gods of the ancient Near East were jealous in a low sort of way, like the Greco-Roman gods. They were supposedly involved in all manner manner of petty uh, rivalries and intrigues. But it's God's very nature to require undivided loyalty on the part of his people. His jealousy is a mark of his reality and his holiness. One famous Old Testament scholar says that this Holy jealousy is the basic element in the whole Old Testament idea of God. You see, if there is but one living and true God, everyone must give his allegiance to that God and to no other. Joshua's stern reply was a way of saying, I don't want you to speak blithely about how you are going to serve the Lord. A superficial commitment is not going to be enough. (coughs) And if you fail to keep the promise you have made, the Lord will not forgive you for it. It may also convey some concern on Joshua's part for the future fidelity of Israel. He knew this people too well. He had heard them make promises before that they then did not keep. But in any case, here is in many places in the Old Testament, an absolute statement is made when in fact it is conditional. God will not forgive if you fail to remain faithful to him. The unconditional nature of the statement is a Hebraism. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do do you harm and consume you, And after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. In response to Joshua's stern words, the people reaffirm their loyalty to Yahweh. And Joshua reminds them that their solemn promise made so publicly would come back to haunt them if they proved unfaithful in the end. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. It's unclear whether Joshua's demand implies that some Israelites were still harboring idols or perhaps more likely that he was making it clear that To be loyal uh, to the Lord meant that they must absolutely repudiate and forsake any and other so-called gods. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them 
at Shechem. Though this is the report, as I said, this is the report of the ceremony, not the actual (coughs) treaty itself. In the typical structure of the ancient Near Eastern treaties, this part of the chapter corresponds to the writing down of the stipulations of the treaty, the laws and commandments, to the deposit of a copy of the treaty in the sanctuary, to its public reading, and to the identification of those who are witnesses to it. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. When a covenant or treaty was made in the ancient world, a document with its details was produced, and that was done here. Then the stone of witness was placed under a large oak tree near where the tabernacle had been set up. Such a tree served as a landmark. Everyone would know where the stone was to be found. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. So ends the central narrative of the book. Narrative of the book. There were no more lands to be taken, no more territorial disp- dis- distributions to be made, no more speeches to be given, no more covenants to be entered into. Everyone was to return to his own inheritance, which was the goal from the very beginning of the book. Our Father in heaven, we have really a momentous um, event, historical moment in the history of your people, and so in our history. Help us to understand its significance, not just for the Israelites in Joshua's day, but for ourselves today. For this is not only our history, It is a description of the reality of which we too are a part as believers in and followers of Jesus Christ. Help us, O God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the the long-standing and one of the most difficult tasks of biblical theology is sorting out the interplay between an absolute divine sovereignty taught and emphasized so many times and in so many ways in the Bible and a genuine human freedom and accountability. Some Christian theological systems simply affirm the one emphasis and do their best to minimize or ignore the other. Some Christian theologians have attempted to harmonize The two, by attempting to explain how it is possible that everything that happens, everything, was foreordained by an absolute predestination from the affairs of men and nations to the salvation of human beings to the number of hairs on your head this morning. And, on the other hand, that if people choose to do one thing, one thing will happen. And if they choose to do another thing, another entirely different thing will happen. 
The free choices that we make determine the outcome of things. Joshua very obviously is asserting the latter truth here. You must choose one or the other, Yahweh or the gods of the ancient world, and the choice you make will determine everything. I've often told you that one of the strengths of our Reformed tradition is that it is thought it best simply to do what the Bible does and affirm both truths, making no attempt to harmonize them or explain the interplay between them. In the same way (coughs) that we do not attempt to explain how God can be one and three at the same time or how Christ can be both God and man at the same time because the Bible does not tell us how to explain these things. So we do not attempt to explain how everything can come to pass according to the will of God and at the same time the choices we make as human beings and that we make freely may have all manner of temporal and eternal consequences. Here, all the emphasis falls on what Israel must do if she wishes to retain the Lord's favor. There is, as you know, a great deal of, if you do this, God will do that in the Bible. And there's a great deal of it in the book of Joshua. In fact, the element of personal choice and its consequence may even be said to be a particular theme of this book of the Bible. Rahab made a choice that the rest of the citizens of Jericho did not make, and so she was saved while they were lost. Achan made a choice that the other Israelites did not make at Jericho, and he was destroyed while the rest of the nation inherited the land. The Gibeonites, alone among the peoples of Canaan, made a choice to seek peace with Israel, and they lived while their fellow countrymen were destroyed in battle. And Joshua, throughout the book, has been instructed to do one thing and then to do another, and he made a choice to obey the Lord, and now the whole nation is settled in Canaan. As I said, chapter 24 (coughs) is the record of a ceremony of covenant renewal. The covenant in the Bible a very important theme in the Bible. The covenant is the human freedom, the human responsibility, the human accountability side of the Bible's revelation of salvation. A covenant, both in the ancient world and in the Bible, is a relationship of mutual responsibility. God will keep his promises if we fulfill our obligations. In the covenant... Everything depends upon what we choose to do. And if we choose to fulfill the obligations the Lord has laid upon us. In the covenant, the Lord responds, as he has said he would, to the choices that we make. Rewarding the proper ones, punishing the others. Now, we Presbyterians know very well that in other respects... Salvation depends solely on what the Lord does and not in any respect to any degree on what we do. But here, the emphasis falls 
on the choice we make and the actions that stem from that choice. How to reconcile these very different emphases, I do not know. And no one one else does either. That they lie side by side on virtually every page of the Bible, who can deny? But then there is no need to reconcile friends, is there? And obviously these two truths of an absolute divine sovereignty and an absolute human freedom and accountability are friends, not enemies in the Bible. That's why the Bible talks endlessly about both of them, but never seems to display any concern to make them agree with one another. Reality is often mysterious, is it not? Of course we know that the living God will do what pleases him in heaven and on earth. Of course we know that our salvation is his gift, his work in our hearts and lives. And Christ's work for us while we were still his enemies. But we also know, every one of us knows, that our choices matter. Our life is not some illusion. God is not playing games with us. We live every day making choices that have consequences. To choose and to reap the consequence of the choices we have made is what it means to be a human being. Human life in its dignity and its supreme importance in every respect rests upon this connection between choice and consequence, between what we do and the outcome of our acts. In the most recent issue of Biblical Archaeological Review, there is a full-page advertisement that bears the headline, Choose life. I saw those words at the top. Choose life. And I was expecting to, for, to find, as you do sometimes in that, in that magazine, a form, some form of Christian evangelism. We read those words, choose life, as you know, in Deuteronomy. And this is, in effect, what Joshua is urging the Israelites to do here in chapter 24. Choose life. Not death. Choose life. As it turned out, however, the ad is for a health supplement described as the reverse aging miracle. We are being told that if we buy and use this supplement, we will enjoy all manner of happy consequences for years and years to come. And it must be so because there is a money-back guarantee. People are urging us to make choices all the time. Precisely because everybody agrees. We all know that our choices make all manner of difference to our lives. Scam artists trade on our understanding of this fact. But very often human beings make choices with no reckoning for the eventual consequences of the choices they have made. The person who overindulges his enjoyment of tasty food does not set out to become obese. The alcoholic does not set out to be arrested for drunken driving or to ruin his liver. The accountant 
working his fiddle on the company books, does not set out to be arrested for embezzlement. The lazy student does not set out materially to diminish his or her opportunities for life by playing on the computer or watching TV instead of doing homework. And this is exactly Joshua's point. You cannot escape the consequences of your choice. You might for a while, but eventually you must pay the piper. So choose wisely. Israel might very well have been tempted. Indeed, we know she often was tempted because she succumbed to the temptation to believe that she could have Yahweh and the other gods. There's very little evidence anywhere in the Old Testament to suggest that Israel ever abandoned her belief in Yahweh. But she often also worshipped other gods. She thought she could have it both ways. She thought she could enjoy the best of both worlds, as it were. She often thought she could be both an Israelite and a Canaanite. But Joshua will have nothing of it. No, like it or not, Israel must choose from the actual alternatives. Yahweh or the false gods of Mesopotamia or Canaan. If they choose Yahweh, then they cannot have those other gods. Or the easier life those other gods are supposed to permit. And if they choose the other gods, they can't have Yahweh at all. Because he won't tolerate their dabbling in theological illusion. Here is where so many people go so fatally wrong. And all people go wrong some of the time. We make choices without an honest weighing of the consequence. Without facing the inevitable outcome. And in the spiritual realm, in the realm of man's relationship with God... It is precisely at this point, the point Joshua emphasizes in his farewell address, that people most often go wrong. As Joshua put it here, if you choose the Lord, Yahweh, the living and true God, then you have to be his servant. You will have his favor, both in this world and in the next, but you must be his servant, exclusively his servant. That's the choice. Become a servant of the Lord and live, and live forever, or serve instead these gods whose service is so much easier. But then what? The word serve occurs seven times in just verses 14 and 15 alone. You must choose whom you will serve, the living God or the idols of the world. But don't kid yourself. Either choice has momentous consequences. Putting it in terms we can understand today, Ralph Davis, a fine commentator on Joshua, a retired PCA minister, writes, The conservatives, who were fond of tradition, of what had stood the test of time, who yearned for the faith of our fathers, might vote for Mesopotamia. The liberals, with their yen for relevance for being in step with the times, might prefer to identify with the current social milieu and enter into dialogue and worship with the Amorites. 
but you must choose. If not Yahweh, then take your pick from what Matthew Henry calls these dunghill deities. It was altogether easier to serve the gods of the ancient world as it is altogether easier today to serve the gods of the modern Western world. Ease, comfort, pleasure, money, fame, power. They don't require your heart or your holiness. Any thoughtful observer of American life can see that we as a people are inclined to choose the easy path with little regard to long-term consequences. It was Woody Allen who quipped that to be an American is to take God and carpet with equal seriousness. That perhaps is why Joshua startles us as he does in verse 15, as if he were really offering Israel a choice of gods. His point is precisely that we must serve someone. We human beings are born servants. We always worship someone or something. Every human being does. Every human being must. It may be utterly foolish and deeply perverse for an Israelite ever to serve an idol, but everybody else was doing it. And it was so much easier to worship the way they worshipped and so much more fun. So Joshua hurried on to make the next point. Whatever choice you make, whomever you choose to serve, there will be consequences. If you don't serve the Lord, you will have to answer to Him eventually. That is the Bible's assertion from beginning to end. That is, make no mistake, the reason all of us are sitting here this morning. There's a sternness to Holy Scripture. An inflexible seriousness precisely because the stakes of human life are so high. Throughout this chapter, we cannot once detect a smile on Joshua's face. The issue of human life is too appalling. People, people, however, don't simply neglect to think about consequences. They resent the suggestion that they must. They, should, they resent that they should be put upon in this way. Peter Hitchens, the late uh, Christopher Hitchens' brother, one of the new atheists, refers in his book, the rage against God to the Anglican catechism that he was made to learn at school. What is thy duty towards God? To submit myself to all my governors, teachers, spiritual pastors and masters, to order myself lowly and reverently to all my betters, to do my duty in that state of life unto which it shall please God to call me. He goes on to say, this passage well expresses the thing that the confident, ambitious young person dislikes about religion. It's call for submission. Submission to established authority. And it's disturbing implication that others can and will decide what I must be and do. Well, Joshua uses the term serve here, not submit, though to be sure, the word submit is used often enough in the Bible. But the point is the same with all of its obvious implications. It's not for nothing that throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament, and even 
as often in the new, the Christian is described as a servant of God, even a bond slave of Christ. We instinctively recoil from the very idea until we consider the alternative. At the end of every life lies this single alternative. Forgiveness and the favor and the blessing and the presence of God forever. Or his condemnation, punishment, and supremely the absence of God. And with him, all that is good and happy and noble and satisfying and fulfilling in human life. The problem, of course, is that you can't see this immediately with the eye. How different life would be if we could look up and glimpse into heaven and hell from afar. But we cannot. There are many anticipations of both destinies, of course, more than enough to leave us without excuse. But the Canaanites prospered for years serving their so-called gods. It wasn't until the Israelites arrived on their doorstep that they learned that their gods were nothings, could not protect them, and in fact had delivered them to the judgments of the Lord. But of course, for most of them it was too late. Too late is writ large over this world, over the life of mankind in this world. The saddest things of tongue and pen to tell the things that might, that might have been. Too late. Only too late will they learn that they were serving gods that were no gods and that thou, now they must face and give answer to the God who actually is. Wise human beings who see people all around them constantly making choices without regard to the consequences and who have themselves if they would only be honest with themselves, made so many poor choices simply because it was easier to do that thing at that moment than to reckon with its likely consequence down the road. I say people who look around them and see wherever they look smart people making foolish choices should examine themselves to see if they have not made such a foolish choice in regard to the very foundation and the very future of their lives. But now I want you to notice one thing more. In this entire passage, Joshua was speaking to believers. To put it in modern terms, he was not delivering an evangelistic sermon. He was preaching to the choir. This is not the generation that perished in the wilderness. This is the generation that defeated Sihon and Og, that laid waste the Canaanites in battle after battle, and of whom we will read at the very end of the book, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. It is to this people, who had themselves seen with their own eyes the punishment of unfaithful Israel and witnessed the Lord's power exercised on their behalf from the crossing of the Jordan on dry ground to the defeat of Jericho to the conclusion of the conquest. I say it was to these believers that Joshua spoke these stern words and from whom he asked for this 
so serious commitment. They'd followed the Lord as their fathers had not done. But Joshua still thought it was necessary to put this question to them once again. And so the Bible does to us throughout. Believers are never taught that a single commitment is sufficient. But that our commitment to the Lord must be renewed again and again and again. That's what we do Lord's Day by Lord's Day here in this house. We renew our covenant with God again and again. We've done it, some of us, thousands of times. And that's right. We're constantly being asked to do again what we did at first. To trust the Lord. To pledge our lives to Him. To serve Him. Just as Joshua was asking Israel to do here. He'd already done the same in a previous farewell address. Our chapter 23. And here in chapter 24, he does it once more. The Christian life is composed of ever new beginnings. I love this from Alexander White. We are always returning home from the far country. And we are always saying, Father, I have again sinned. And our Heavenly Father is always saying over us, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. Every morning you rise, put it on to go out to your day's work wearing it. And every returning night, put it on to lie down in it. That robe that the Heavenly Father has given you, the robe of Christ's righteousness. Put it on and make it your morning coat. And put it on and make it your evening dress. Put it on to be married in it if you would be married in the Lord, and put it on to die in it, if you would die in the Lord. Put it on to die in it, and to wake in it, and to go up to the judgment wearing it. Put it on to stand at the right hand of the great white throne in it, and put it on to enter heaven shining like the sun in it. Put it on. Put it on again and again and again. What Christians did to make themselves Christians, they must do to the end of their lives. Nothing is once for all in the Christian's life and experience so far as his actions are concerned. Faith, repentance, obedience are everyday things, repeated things, things to be renewed constantly and to the very end. Do you remember? That was the very first of Luther's 95 Theses, the posting of which ignited the Protestant Reformation. When our Lord and Master said, Repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. In other words, every day we are to turn again, turn away from sin, turn to the Lord and to righteousness. Every single day. Now let me sum up. Only Yahweh, the living God, the God who actually is, the creator of heaven and earth. Only Yahweh ever made a covenant with particular human beings. Only the God of Abraham tells those who trust in him precisely who he is and precisely what he is like and therefore what he requires of them. He makes that covenant with anyone who will enter it 
by faith. Only he demands true loyalty. Only he tells them precisely what the consequences will be of both living by faith and living in unbelief. Only he extends himself in love toward people, unworthy and unreliable as they are. Only he offers forgiveness and eternal life and himself in return for faith, love, loyalty, and obedience. He is the only God. In all the religions of the world, he is the only God who makes and keeps promises. The God of Islam doesn't promise anything to any particular worshiper. No Muslim knows what will happen to him when he dies. The gods of the modern West make no promises and keep no promises. Only the Lord draws his people into a covenant in which he binds himself in loving promise to reward his people, though he demands their love and loyalty in return. And in conclusion, did you notice Joshua's this day in verse 15? Choose this day whom you will serve. Yesterday's choices lie in the past. Tomorrow may or may not come. And who knows what you'll be thinking tomorrow. Today is the day to choose the Lord. It's always today. It's never tomorrow in the Bible. Today is the only day that touches eternity. We're always inclined to live in the past or in the future. But the Bible summons us to live and to love and to choose today when it matters. And so it is ours, yours and mine, to choose again and to choose again today. Whom will you serve? The Lord or the gods of this world? Make your choice and then say it to yourself no matter how many times you may have said this before. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen. As we approach God's table, let's pray. Most merciful Father, endless is your mercy and eternal is your reign. In your wisdom, you made all things and you sustain them by your power. You formed us in your image, setting us in this world to love and to serve you and one another. And when we rebelled against you, refusing to trust and obey you, you did not reject us, but still sought us as your own. In the fullness of time, you sent your Son, born of the Holy Spirit by the Virgin Mary. In word and deed, he proclaimed your kingdom and was obedient to your will, to the point of death, even death on a cross, and all for our sake. As we gather around this memorial of his perfect sacrifice for us, we do not presume to come trusting in our own righteousness, but in your great mercy. You are the God who delights in showing us grace. Grant, therefore, that as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we would be sanctified again by Christ's precious body and blood. Hear us now for his sake. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this as my memorial.
In the same way also, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it as my memorial. Let's pray. Gracious Father, with this bread and cup, we remember your life, the the life our Lord offered for us. And believing in the witness of his resurrection, we await his coming in power to share with us the great and promised feast. Send now, we pray, your Holy Spirit, that we who receive the Lord's body and blood may live to the praise of your glory and receive our inheritance with all your saints. Knit us together now as your people, with one another and with your servants from every time and every place, and unite us together with our great high priest, who intercedes for us now at your right hand, and who will come again to reign as victorious Lord of all. Merciful God, grace this table with your presence and give us a foretaste of the feast to come. Amen. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come forward and receive them that the body and blood of our Lord may strengthen and nurture you in his grace.
If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you, too, once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. And now our final hymn, number 590, Jesus Master, Whose I Am.
receive God's benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you all peace.